the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, October 6th. I'm your host, Mike Perry. Thanks for tuning in. The mainstream was wrong about inflation in 2020. Not just wrong, wildly wrong. Like, not even in the ballpark. Or maybe they were in the ballpark, like a baseball park, but everybody else was playing a hockey game. Mainstream economists, Fed officials, academics, financial media pundits, politicians, they were all wildly wrong. Now, of course, this wasn't the first time they were wrong. How about in 2006, when the mainstream said there was no problem in the housing market? Or 2007, when they finally admitted there was a problem, but it was confined to subprime. You know, this raises a question. Why do we put so much stock in what these people say today? I mean, the track record isn't great, is it? They might be right this time, though. You know, it's possible. They might be right. But as my wife is fond of saying, a mite is a small bug on a bird's ass. So, why am I on this particular soapbox today? Well, I ran across a video that CNBC did back in 2020 explaining why all of the money printing and stimulus wasn't going to cause price inflation. Uh, Did I mention they were wildly wrong? So today, I thought I would break down the video because it reveals some of the reasons the mainstream struggles to understand what's going on. Problems with definitions and and the way they view the economy. But before we dig into that, I want to touch on some of the news of the week. Now, I'm sure if you're following the markets, you know that gold and silver continued to get pressured by a strong dollar and soaring bond yields. So we didn't see the big sell-offs like we saw last week, but we definitely saw downward pressure. There was a little bit of relief yesterday with yields easing and the dollar softening ahead of today's jobs numbers. But Gold still ended up losing about 80 cents on the day. It dropped as low as 18.14 an ounce before rallying afternoon, uh, and it closed a little above 18.20. Now, the big story, again, is the bond sell-off. I don't think people really grasp how badly the bond market has been pummeled over the last several months. Here's a little perspective for you. Bonds that mature in 10 years or more, so longer-term bonds, they have slumped 46% since peaking in March 2020. That compares with a 49% plunge in the U.S. stock market after the dot-com bust. So this is a significant bear market for bonds. Now, I was thinking about this the other day. I think the fact that yields rise when bonds sell off kind of confuses people. Because, I mean, it kind of seems like it might be a good thing, right? Interest rates are going up, and that means if you buy a bond, you're going to get more interest on it. You're going to get a better return. Um, So I think a lot of people think, well, that means it's a good thing. But remember that the the yield, the interest rate, is really just the flip side of the equation. What it means is that the price of bonds is falling through the floor. As bond prices drop, yields rise. 
This tells you that there isn't a whole lot of demand for bonds out there. That's why the yield has to go up. They have to pay more and more in order to get you to lend them money, right? Uh, and on the flip side, uh, as, as there's less demand, they have to drop the price. It's basic economics, except there's kind of two sides to the equation when you're talking about bonds. Um, so not a lot of demand, or it could be that there is a an oversupply of bonds. And in reality, I think it's a little bit of both. Demand is dropping, but there's also a flood of paper out there. Get this, the federal government has added nearly half a trillion dollars to the national debt in just a little over two weeks. Remember, it was just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was uh, September 15th, that the debt blew past $33 trillion. It's now almost $33.5 trillion. That's an insane amount of borrowing in a very short amount of time. Now, I will give you this. Part of the reason the debt is going up so fast is because the Treasury Department is rebuilding cash reserves that were depleted during the fake debt ceiling fight, right? So they hit the debt ceiling, they couldn't borrow, so they had to uh, deplete their cash reserves uh, during the time that the um, that they were up against that borrowing limit. And so now they're borrowing money to basically restore those reserves, okay? Borrowing for a rainy day, I guess. Uh, but the fact remains, the federal government is still spending way too much money. And you can see this every month when the Treasury reports come out. You can see that the Biden administration right now is spending basically half a trillion dollars every single month. And so here in a couple of uh, days, probably maybe not next week, the week after, We'll get the final Treasury statement for fiscal year 2022. So we'll see what the total budget deficit for the fiscal year was. We're already well over a trillion dollars. Um, so, yeah, the, the government spends too much money, right? So we avoided a government shutdown this week after Republicans caved, I mean, compromised, and uh, went ahead and passed a continuing resolution to keep spending for a month or so, because God forbid we have to shut down the government. I've said this before, when we do these government shutdowns, they never shut down the good stuff. You know, like, they'll never shut down the IRS uh, or the, you know, the FDA, but they're going to shut down, you know, parks and things that don't really matter. But anyway, we avoided that. Thank goodness. Your uh, sarcasm meter should have just peaked out uh, right there. But anyway, you know, a lot of people were kind of mad at the so-called hard-right Republicans um, because they were demanding some kind of spending cuts, something to address the spending uh, in the upcoming budget. So they were willing to shut the government down. And of course, you know, most people are like, oh my gosh, we can't have the government shut down. What would we do? Um, so people were mad at the uh, these hard right Republicans, a handful of Republicans. But you know, we, we should actually hail those people as heroes. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious there because I don't hail any politician as a hero. Um, and, you know, the cynical part of me says it's just political grandstanding. But, you know, maybe are, there are a few of those folks that are genuinely fiscally conservative and, and genuinely concerned about the spending. But regardless, they're the only ones trying to address the giant elephant in the living room. This borrowing and spending is unsustainable. We've talked about this on the show. Sadly, nothing is going to change. 
I mean, yeah, we might have another shutdown showdown here in a few weeks. Uh, maybe they'll even actually shut the government down. Of course, the politics is, you know, crazy right now. They ousted the House Speaker and, and, and all that, but I, I don't really care about it. To me, that's a lot of kabuki theater. The bottom line is we have a significant spending problem. We have a significant debt problem, and nobody's serious about addressing it. And no matter what kind of political grandstanding uh, these, these small number of Republicans do— whether they're sincere or not, it's not going to change anything, right? N- nobody actually believes that spending is going to be cut in a meaningful way. I mean, we might even get a budget deal with some superficial spending cuts, and you know, and they'll say, "Oh, we're going to cut so many, uh, so much money in ten years." And I guarantee you that when it's all said and done, the federal government will still be, be spending way too much money. Any cuts will be superficial, and they will, well, they'll, they will overwhelm any cuts with supplemental spending bills in the coming months, right? So they might cut spending, and, and most of the time when they say they're cutting spending, what they really mean is they're not increasing spending as much as they otherwise would have. But regardless, what happens is, is they'll do that, and then there'll be some emergency, right? Well, we'll need, we need to send more money to Ukraine. Uh, we've got a disaster. We need to have disaster spending. Or, or oh my gosh, we need to fund who knows what? You know, politicians, there's an endless laundry list of things they can come up to spend, come up with to spend money on. And since they basically have a credit card with an unlimited uh, spending limit right now, I, they're going to come up with more stuff to spend money on, okay? Maybe I'm being cynical, but I'm not. That's just reality. I'm being a realist here. Anyway, the the bond crisis. This is a big problem for the U.S. government. I've talked about it before. I think I talked about it last week. As interest rates continue to rise, it's raising borrowing costs for the federal government. And we're rapidly seeing that. If you look at the Treasury statements uh, in, uh, I think it was July, we actually had a situation where the interest on the debt was more than national defense. Now, that was a one-off month. But the following month, it was close. And... I think that as we move into next year, as interest rates continue to stay high, maybe raise more, as more and more of the low interest debt that was accumulated earlier is rolled off and they have to replace that with higher interest debt, you're going to see the interest on the debt payments go up. And I think it's going to quickly become one of the biggest budget items in the in the government budget. It's ridiculous, right? Anyway, that's the way it is. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet... You might want to check out a podcast interview that Jim Grant did last summer where he explains why we're probably heading toward a generational bear market in bonds. And I'll link to that in the show notes page. Um, But, you know, the bottom line is I don't see how there is any relief for rising interest rates, for this glut of bonds on the market, for the lack of demand, other than for the Fed to step back in, go back to quantitative easing, in other words, buying bonds to create artificial demand. And, you know, what that means, that's inflation. Um, And, you know, this bond thing, it's not just a problem for the U.S. government. It's really creating a credit crunch, right? When Treasury yields rise, it pushes up interest rates throughout the economy from mortgages to credit cards, right? When when people are looking at buying bonds, you know, Treasuries are an option, and they're considered the safest option because – Ostensibly, the federal government's not going bankrupt, although it is bankrupt. Um, but 
it's competing with other types of debt, right? People who, uh, co- corporations who want to issue bonds, they have to compete in this, in this environment and their borrowing costs are going up. So borrowing costs are going up across the board. And, and we also see an increase in mortgage rates. Uh, we see an increase in credit card interest rates. All money is becoming more expensive. Money is becoming tighter. It's credit crunch that we're heading into. And, um, problem. It's a huge problem for this economy because the economy is built on debt. Uh, Peter Schiff did a good discussion in a a podcast. I think he did it, the podcast, late last week. And he talked about the problems in the real estate market due to rising mortgage rates. And uh, you might want to check that out. It's definitely worth listening to or at least read my summary of it. And I'll put that link in the show notes page as well. So anyway, the bottom line is that's really what's pressuring gold and silver right now. Uh, we've got a strong dollar, we've got rising yields, and, and that is naturally considered to be bearish for gold. And, and I can see that if you're just looking at that particular dynamic, but you got to kind of step back and look at the broader economy, because there are other reasons that maybe you might want to have gold, including the fact that I don't think inflation is quite dead yet, uh, and and the fact that this whole house of cards is going to come down, and uh, it's just going to be bad news all the way. I mean, you know, they always talk about gold uh, as being a safe haven. You're going to need some safe haven here in in the next year or so. But uh, regardless, that's, that's where we are. We've got this pressure on gold and silver. Um, and, you know, as, as I just said, the mainstream is missing part of the equation. The Fed is going to have to pivot and try to drive rates lower because I say it over and over again, talk about it almost every week on the show. The economy cannot operate in a tight monetary environment. There's simply too much debt. So that pivot means you got it, more inflation. So, you know, it's really a mess. It's it's uh, when you look at the the actual condition of the economy, it's like we're hurtling toward a cliff, but we're still far enough away from the cliff that everybody's like, yeah, it's fine, nothing to worry about here. Uh, I, I think you might ought to start worrying, but you know, it's just me. You do you. Um, so you know that kind of raises the question in my mind: What's going to drive these interest rates down? Right. Um, Maybe to some degree, uh, if, if we do end up going into a recession, I think we're definitely going into a recession, and, and I'll uh, link to a, an interesting article also in the show notes page, uh, a study that Deutsche Bank did looking at um, four key macroeconomic indicators of inflation, or not inflation, of a recession. And all four of them exist right now. So, you know, I think we're heading towards that. So that could push interest rates lower. But the fact that the government is borrowing so much freaking money, there's still going to be a huge supply of treasuries out there. Um, and will there be enough demand to eat that up? I don't know. Again, uh, you know, Jim Grant says that we're heading towards this generational bear market and bonds, which means higher interest rates uh, for a long period of time. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, now, you know, right now, regardless, the mainstream really isn't all that interested in gold. But you know who is interested in gold? Central banks. And that might ought to tell you something. And it's particularly central banks that would rather not be overexposed to dollars. 
As the World Gold Council put it, central bank gold buying continued to sizzle. Uh, That's the word they used. Uh, Central bank globally, banks, not just one, central banks globally, added another net 77 tons to their reserves in August, according to the uh, most recent data that was released this week. It was the third straight month of net purchases, and... um, over the last three months, net gold buying by central banks has totaled 219 tons. Now, you might remember, if you follow central bank gold buying, earlier this year, we had some significant selling by Turkey due to some of their economic situations. It was it was kind of a, uh, um, a reaction to a specific situation, and it's pretty clear it wasn't any kind of change in their mentality towards gold because uh, over the last couple of months, they've been buying again. Uh, the biggest buyer in August was China. Uh, make of that what you will. In fact, China is the largest gold buyer year to date. It, uh, it's increased its official reserves by 166 tons since the beginning of the year, and it's increased it by 217 tons since it resumed official purchases last November. Uh, as you may be aware, uh, China kind of has this thing where they'll buy a bunch of gold and then they kind of go silent and, and don't report any changes in their reserves for a long stretch of time. And then they go back to buying gold again. Um, there's a lot of speculation that China holds a lot more gold off the books and that maybe when it's going silent, it's still accumulating gold. Uh, I think that's a, uh, I think there's a strong case to be made that that's happening. Um, you know, it's almost like the Chinese understand what real money is. Uh, It's pretty clear they certainly don't want to be left holding a bag of dollars. Other big buyers in August include Poland, Turkey, India, Uzbekistan, uh, and it looks like Russia might be restocking its reserves. You know, the Russians were the biggest gold buyer, um, gold buyers before the uh, Ukraine invasion. We were seeing uh, consistently Russia adding gold, adding gold, adding gold. Uh, And then after the invasion, of course, uh, that threw their finances into uh, all kinds of upheaval. And uh, they actually sold a little bit of gold. But uh, Russia reported a 3.1 ton increase in gold reserves in August. And that actually brings the country's gold holdings back to the level they were uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, And interestingly, last month, there were reports that Russia would recommence uh, the buying of foreign currency and gold in the coming months. Now, no details on what that plan actually was. We'll see where that goes. But if Russia starts buying gold again and China's buying gold, that's going to be a significant amount of buying. And uh, if you look at some of the analysis the World Gold Council has done, uh, they say that one of the reasons that gold has held uh, its price as well as it has, and granted, there's been a lot of downward pressure, but despite higher yields and a stronger dollar, part of the reason is central bank gold buying. And that looks like um, there's there's no sign that the central bank gold buying is going to slow down anytime soon. Um, I did a full report on the latest central bank gold buying data over at shiftgold.com slash news, and I'll also link to that in the show notes page. There's going to be a bunch of stuff in the show notes page uh, this week. Um, I mentioned the September jobs data earlier in the show. Uh, that actually came out this morning. Now, due to my schedule, I actually had to record the show yesterday on Thursday. So, obviously, I can't report on uh, the uh, jobs numbers because 
I don't know what they are as I'm recording this. Uh, I'm sure Peter Schiff is going to break that all down in his podcast uh, on, on uh, usually he does it on Friday or Saturday. And uh, I mean, really, does the jobs report really matter all that much? I mean, in reality, I mean, they're just going to revise the numbers down in a month or a month or so. Uh, you know, they've revised every jobs report down after the fact, every one this year. So, you know, put whatever stock you want to in the jobs report. But I, I do know that uh, whenever that data comes out, it is going to have an impact on the markets. If it comes out weak, you're going to see a rally in gold because that's how we roll, because that means the economy's weakening. Uh, and, and if the headline jobs numbers are strong, well, I think gold might test $1,800 now. Okay, so how wrong can you be? If you're in the mainstream and you're talking about economic stuff, you can be wildly wrong, like exceptionally wrong. Yeah, I run out of uh, good adjectives for it. Just really, really wrong. Um, So I mentioned I ran across a CNBC video, um, and it was produced in July 2020. It's titled, Why Printing Trillions of Dollars May Not Cause Inflation. That aged poorly, didn't it? You know, and people wonder why I keep saying you should be skeptical of mainstream narratives and numbers and data and stuff. They're they're wrong. (laughs) Anyway, I'll link to the video in the show notes if you want to watch it. It's about 10 minutes long. It's kind of interesting, I guess. It's almost humorous in retrospect, right? You you know what happened, and you see these people breathlessly talking about how, oh, all this money printing and all this stimulus, eh, not a problem. So, you, you can check it out. But, um... I'm going to break a little bit of it down because, as as I said at the top of the show, it it kind of reveals some of the blind spots that mainstream economists, financial analysts, people like that have. One of the biggest is just the fact that they're they're so short-sighted, right? Um, The news cycle is like, what, 24 hours? And and I think some people have the attention span that that doesn't go beyond much uh, past 30 minutes. So, that's one problem. There's just this... I don't know, a failure to see bigger pictures, to back up and look at the macro. Everybody's caught up in the here and now. I constantly have people telling me how awful gold is, how gold's been horrible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's points where gold goes down, clearly. And this year has been particularly difficult, but gold was up last year. I mean, you would think the way people talk that that if you bought gold, you know, you're in the, in the poor house. And uh, you know, they always want to go to 2011 because if you bought gold in 2011, yeah, you're probably not very happy. Um, but, you know, you go back a little farther than that. If you bought gold in, you know, maybe 2008, you're, you're pleased as punch. So, um, you know, perspective matters. And uh, that's part of the problem in the mainstream. But there's just some other things that we're going to touch on as we go through this video. So, um, it was produced at the height of pandemic stimulus and money creation. Uh at the time the video was produced, uh, they note that the Fed's balance sheet had just eclipsed $7 trillion. So that was nearly $2 trillion less than what it ended up peaking at, which was just below $9 trillion. And even today, despite, I don't know, I, I'm not going to call it aggressive uh tightening or balance sheet reduction because, I mean, to me, aggressive would be like taking it back to pre-pandemic levels, but um, it's still above $8 trillion uh, where we are. And, and I've talked about this before. The balance sheet reduction plan 
it would take seven years to unwind all of that um, pandemic era stimulus. So really, when you think of it in those terms, if, if you recognize that inflation is the creation of money, the plan that the Fed is on is like a seven-year plan to get that inflation out of the economy. Of course, that'll never happen. Um, anyway, the narrator begins the video by pointing out that some economists at the time were worried about inflation. And she plays a clip of an economist quoting Milton Friedman, who famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Which is absolutely true. Now, at first when I heard this woman, I thought, oh, this is going to be the economist that's going to be the same one. You know, they, they usually have one in the piece that's a little bit contrarian. I thought, well, this is the sane economist, but alas, she was not. Um, so, she gives us this quote about inflation being a monetary phenomenon, which is correct again. But the narrator goes on to assert that we really didn't need to worry about inflation. She says, quote, Supply shocks have driven up the price of some goods over the past few months, yet recent history suggests inflation is more likely to stay low for a long time. It didn't. <laughs> of course, you know that. Um, and, and every time I hear something like that, the, the word that runs through my head is, it's transitory. And you already see this narrative building, right? It's supply shocks. We heard that for months. Inflation is transitory. It was nothing but supply shocks. All of this money we created doesn't matter. You know, they carried that on for quite a long time. Um, ironically, the economist who quoted Friedman later boldly proclaims, quote, the idea that there's going to be an outbreak of inflation, you know, 4%, 5%, that is just not on the horizon. I guess technically she was correct. We didn't get 4% or 5%. We got 9%. And that's using the the horribly uh, bastardized CPI calculation that understates price inflation. So, yeah, see, she was not the same one. And, you know, I bet the woman still has a job. Anyway, fast forward to today. Do we have low price inflation? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question. Not so much. So, price inflation remains stubbornly high. Three years after the CNBC produced this video promising us we'd get no inflation. That's kind of the summary, right? Now, the biggest problem with the video, and this is a big problem, this is a big part of the reason that the mainstream can't get this right. It misdefines inflation as, quote, an increase in the prices of goods or services over time. This has now become the standard definition of inflation, rising prices, right? So, you know, if oil goes up, then we have inflation. Um, this definition of inflation muddies the waters, and that's on purpose, the proper economic definition of inflation is an increase in the amount of money and credit, or to put another way, an expansion in the money supply. Now, if we really want to be technical, the word inflation simply means something's getting bigger. So, if we really want to be precise in our language, we should differentiate monetary inflation and price inflation. And really what they're talking about in this video, and whenever the mainstream says inflation, they're talking about price inflation. And um, price inflation, as Friedman alluded to, is a consequence of monetary inflation, right? 
So when you use these more precise definition, it immediately reveals the absurdity of the video. Because basically, it's trying to make the case that inflation doesn't cause inflation. Right? That's what they're saying. That inflating the money supply doesn't cause inflation. Now, what they really mean is that an inflation in the money supply, monetary inflation, doesn't cause price inflation, which it does. It's a symptom of it. But that's the absurdity of this. Inflation doesn't cause inflation. If you just take that their, their argument to its most simple, basic uh, form, they're saying inflation does not cause inflation. It's kind of dumb. So, you know, the fact that inflation... The, or the definition of inflation as being an expansion in the money supply was really the accepted definition as late as the 1980s. So, in other words, if you go back in the 70s and, the, and they talked about I- inflation, they really mean an increase in the money supply. At least the, the economists and, and the people who really understood what they were talking about, that's what they meant. And then that gradually changed. The government, along with its apologists in the corporate media, academia, they altered the definition to basically suit the government purposes, right? The government benefits from muddy waters. So they methodically conflated monetary inflation and price inflation until really there's no distinction between the two. And the standard definition of inflation that's bandied about today is nothing more than government propaganda, uh, to be perfectly blunt about it. Now, economist Ludwig von Mises actually explains the problem with this change in definition, uh, and this was written many, many years ago, but he understood, he saw it coming. He said, people today use the term inflation to refer to the phenomenon that is an inevitable consequence of inflation, that is the tendency of all prices and wages to rise. The result of this deplorable confusion is that there is no term left to signify the cause of the rise in prices and wages. There is no longer any word available to signify the phenomenon that has been, up to now, called inflation. So this is what I mean by muddying the water, right? They've they've conflated definitions. They made it impossible to really talk about it. Mises goes on. He says, as you cannot talk about something that has no name, you cannot fight it. Those who pretend to fight inflation are, in fact, only fighting what is the inevitable consequence of inflation, rising prices. So, again, Mises is getting at the fact that the the standard economic definition of inflation, which was the expansion of, of money and credit, this causes rising prices, but you can't really talk about that because we've just we've just erased that definition of inflation away, and we just talk about price inflation, the the symptom of monetary inflation. Mises goes on, their ventures are doomed to failure because they do not attack the root of the evil. Well, what's the root of the evil? It's the money creation. It's the money printing. He goes on, he says, they try to keep prices low while firmly committed to a policy of increasing the quantity of money that must necessarily make them soar. As long as this terminological confusion is not entirely wiped out, there cannot be any question of stopping inflation. So, this video really makes Mises' point. Now, a little bit of a caveat here. It is true that monetary inflation doesn't always manifest in consumer price inflation. And this was the case after the 2008 financial crisis. Despite three rounds of quantitative easing, a nearly $4 trillion increase in the Fed balance sheet, price inflation as measured by the CPI remained relatively tame in the years after 
the 2008 financial crisis. And I remember a lot of, or several economists that I really respect kind of had to eat crow because when the uh, the money printing started, they all predicted, well, this is going to cause a huge rise in consumer prices. And that didn't happen. And they kind of had to eat crow. And what happened was they failed to anticipate some of uh, the, the changes in the banking system. We'll get to that in a second. And, and the fact that the the price inflation actually was was pushed into other areas, right? So even though the CPI didn't increase rapidly. We didn't see a big jump in consumer prices. We did see a huge increase in the price of assets, right? So the inflation didn't go to consumer prices. It went to asset prices. And I actually talk about this a little bit at the end of the uh, video, surprisingly. They kind of blow it off, but they do talk about it a little bit. Um, so we saw big prices increases in uh, the stock market. We saw big Increases in asset prices like real estate. Uh, we even saw big prices in increases in like art. Okay, so this was all the result of monetary inflation. So we did have price inflation, just wasn't consumer price inflation. And here's the fact of the matter: we don't really know how the money printing after the 2008 financial crisis actually impacted consumer prices. Economic theory simply says monetary inflation will lead to prices across the board being higher than they otherwise would have been. Now, there are all kinds of things in the economy that impact prices, right? So let's say that there's a huge oil discovery and there's a big uh, new supply of oil. That's going to push the price of oil down, right? So we could be in an inflationary environment and the price of oil could drop in that inflationary environment. And as the price of oil drops, that you know lowers the price of energy, so other prices might drop. But that doesn't mean there's no price inflation. It's simply being masked by these other economic factors. The fact of the matter remains, they don't drop as much as they would have been absent the monetary inflation. Okay? So... Had it not been for the massive injection of money into the economy after the Great Recession, we might have enjoyed lower prices instead of just moderate price inflation. We'll never know because you can't go back and run that experiment again. Now, some people out there will say, well, Mike, uh, rapidly falling prices, that would be horrible for the economy. I've never understood that. Like, I, I get the technical jargon, but I don't get it because as far as I'm concerned, falling prices, that's a good thing, <laughs> right? You know, and and... Interestingly, like the normal state of an economy, prices should fall over time because you have more productivity, you have technological advances, prices should fall. You see that in certain things like electronics. Um, the prices of electronics drop over time as they become more efficiently produced, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, anyway, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. The point is that we may well have had much higher price inflation after 08 had it not been for the money printing. Regardless, the fact that CPI didn't surge after the Great Recession, um, that gave Keynesian economists married to theories that are rooted in aggregate demand and all of that. It gave them a, a false sense of security. 
Now, the video claimed, quote, economists say there has been a break in the link between money creation and inflation in recent years as the banking system has become more complex. Sorry, complexity in the banking system does not supersede economic loss. Now, the video does make a legitimate point. Money created by the Fed doesn't go directly into the hands of consumers, right? Uh, it's added to bank reserves. So, primarily where you get the big money creation um, is when the Fed does QE, it buys bonds, and so the money goes into the banking system. It only circulates into the broader economy if banks choose to lend. And after the Great Recession, they didn't. They actually ended up boosting reserves. Some of that had to do with regulatory stuff, but a lot of that money just stayed in the banking system. And again, since it was primarily in the financial system, it did end up going into bond market, stock market, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we even saw this in the latter part of the lockdown era. Um, you, you'll remember that we had a big sell-off in stocks when they first started locking the economy down. And then the stock market surprisingly rallied. Like, we were having these, like, record stock prices, and yet the entire economy was shut down. It was kind of absurd. This was all because of this money that was being just dumped into the financial system. But, of course, a lot of the pandemic-era stimulus did go directly to consumers, right? There were generous unemployment benefits. In fact, a lot of people ended up making more money being unemployed during the pandemic than they actually made working. Uh, we had the direct stimulus checks. We had all kinds of loan programs that were out there. Uh, and then the government, you know, they, they uh, allowed people not to pay on their student loans. Some people didn't have to pay on their mortgages. There were places where people didn't have to pay rent. So people had all this money. It was pretty obvious that monetary inflation would quickly bleed into consumer prices, and yet virtually everybody in the mainstream missed it. Even after it started showing up in the CPI, everybody swore up and down. It was transitory. So again, it's not that they were wrong. They were wildly wrong. That's what this video was all about. I mean, they even address some of these things. They talk about the fact that money was going into consumers' hands, but they basically just made up reasons that it wouldn't matter because they didn't want it to matter, right? They didn't want anybody to think that this was going to be any kind of a problem. And then when it became a problem, they lied out their butts and said it was transitory. And then finally, they had to do something about it. And here we are today, uh, you know, still running headlong towards the cliff. So, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is economics told them it would be wrong, right? But the problem is a lot of these people are wrapped up in bad economic theory. They're wrapped up in economic theories that don't account for things that are actually going on. Keynesian economics, a lot of it is just garbage. Um, and it's sad. I, I really I hate to say this, but a lot of economists don't really understand economics. And I've taken my share of academic economic classes so I understand why they don't, because everything revolves around mathematical formulas and observation devoid of sound theory. So they're trying to observe without any theory. You have to have the theory. You have to have good economic theory to really put numbers and observations into context. So yeah, this video is kind of amusing in a way, because you're watching it and you're going, God, they were wrong. You know, they were wildly wrong. 
but it should also give you pause. When you hear the same talking heads on the same networks, the same economists, the same Fed officials insisting the economy is strong, there won't be a recession, the Fed has won the inflation fight, there's nothing to worry about. I would think twice before I would just hook, line, and sinker accept this narrative. Now, another little caveat. I hear all the time that Peter Schiff has been wrong for more than a decade. But I would argue that the only thing he's wrong about is timing, right? He says there's going to be a crash, and he has very sound reasoning why there's going to be a crash, When you listen to what he says and don't just stop at there's going to be a crash, when you listen to his reasoning, when you listen to his economic theory, it's pretty clear he's right. You can see it unfolding. It's going to be unfolding slower than anybody thought, but it's definitely unfolding. It's unfolding as he predicted, albeit perhaps a bit slower. So, I yeah, Peter was wrong about the timing, and In retrospect, we can see some of the reasons why the timing has extended out. Part of the reason the timing extended out, honestly, was because of COVID, right? We were heading towards a crash in 2018, 2019, and then COVID gave them the excuse to do uh, monetary easing on steroids. So that kind of put things off, and it honestly made things worse. So that's where we are today. Um, it's always important, excuse me, it's always important to take into account economic fundamentals. Have good economic theory. Listen to what Peter, people like Jim Grant, what I'm saying. We're basing this on sound economic theory. I think it's sound economic theory. Now, if you don't think it's sound economic theory, then by all means, explain to me why we're wrong. Just saying that, uh, well, you've been saying this for years and nothing's happened. That's not an argument, okay? You have to tell me why you think that it's going to play out differently. So, uh, I don't mean to get defensive. I'm actually kind of going off off the rails here. But, um, again, the key factor, fundamentals. Um, Now, If you look at the fundamentals, you have to decide for yourself what you think they're telling you. If you believe the economy is fine, well, maybe selling gold is a good idea right now. And then again, maybe the fact that everybody in the mainstream is doing that might be telling you something, too, if we look at the track record of the mainstream. Um, It's definitely telling you something if you're a contrarian, and I'm definitely a contrarian. So, you know, I said this last week, prices in this $1,800 an ounce range... It's a buying opportunity. Silver, buying opportunity. It's a good time to stack. If you are somebody who's buying gold and silver, it's a great time to do it. If you've never considered buying gold and silver, I think this is a good time to do it. I think, you know, we may see some a little more selling, but I think we're near the bottom. I could be wrong about that. But ultimately, when all of this plays out, when the collapse happens, when the Fed has to pivot, the price of gold is going to shoot skyward, and you want to be in position when that happens. So, perfect time to call a shift gold precious metal specialist. You can do that by calling 1-888-GOLD-160 or emailing info at shiftgold.com or just going to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can chat online right there. And tell them what your goals are. If you have questions, ask them the questions. Uh, These guys are fantastic. They're not just trying to sell a product. They want to help you figure out how precious metals might fit into your portfolio. They're experts. 
and they're great to talk to, and they're good guys too, so give them a call today. So with that, we're going to call that a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on everything I've talked about and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, I can't imagine why not. But you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, we're on a bunch of platforms, YouTube. Go to the show notes page. You'll see links for your favorite podcasting channel. You can email me, mmaharry at shipgold.com. I'd love to hear from folks. And I'm ready for the weekend. I don't know about you guys. So I hope you have a good one. And I will talk to you again next week.